Investors Chronicle. Hi, and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Val Cipriani, personal finance writer at Investors Chronicle, and today I am joined by not one, but two investment managers. James Doppel is the manager of the Edinburgh Investment Trust, which many listeners will be familiar with, and the head of Lion Trust Global Fundamental. James is due to retire in February 2024 after a distinguished 36 years long career, one of the highlights of which was co-founding Majidi Asset Management. Majidi was then acquired by Lion Trust in 2022, which still runs Edinburgh Investment Trust. Hi James, welcome. How are you doing? Good to be here, Val. When James does retire, Imran Sattar will take the reins of Edinburgh Investment Trust. Imran also joined Lion Trust as part of the acquisition of Majidi. Before joining Majidi in 2018, he was a fund manager at BlackRock and rose on more than 25 years of experience in the industry. Hi, Imran. Welcome. How are you doing? Um, very well, thanks, Val. Uh, thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. My pleasure. Let's maybe start with you, James. I think the last time you came on an IC podcast was to July 2021. And at the time with my colleague, Alex Newman, you talked about how eventful the first 16 months after taking over Edinburgh Investment Trust had been because of COVID, of course. Since then, we have had another couple of quite intense years. So, you know, how, how has it been through all this and how does it feel like to be retiring at this point with uh, still so much uncertainty ahead of us? Yeah, well, it's one of the great joys of investment management that actually uh, life's never boring. Uh, you know, people talk about black swans, I think, in a way that sort of exaggerates the reality. But I think, you know, the period since COVID on, uh, you know, the teeth of COVID has really illustrated the need for a sort of flexible style. Because if you think about it, there have been lots and lots of different chapters. And I think, you know, looking back on it, the sort of flexible style which Imran and myself uh, employ is, is, I think, pretty resilient to some of these types of um, vicissitudes that, that come across you. And your, your specific question, Val, in terms of sort of the last period since we were last on this podcast, I mean, obviously the world has become a, a distinctly more complicated place with obviously the sad invasion of Ukraine. You know, we've, we've been through a, a period where sort of geopolitics hasn't mattered really, haven't we? And, you know, now geopolitics definitively do matter. And I think that was kind of the first phase of that. And I think there again, the portfolio proved to be relatively resilient to that because, you know, it turned out that it mattered where you got your energy from. So the international energy companies, the likes of Shell and BP did well, and Total Energies. And then obviously, you know, to... Well, SDG 16, which is, you know, endeavouring to protect uh, and create peaceful institutions, you do need uh, a responsible defence procurement operation. And so, you know, there again, with chunky positions in the likes of BAE Systems and Talis, the portfolio did relatively well. Yeah, absolutely. And so before we sort of move on to speaking about the portfolio, can I ask you a bit about, you know, your career in the sense that 36 years is obviously a great achievement. What are some of the things you have learned about investing in this period? You know, some of the things that maybe you wish you'd be able to tell yourself uh, to make your life easier 30 years ago. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the things which I've been lucky enough in, in my um, career, if I can use that word, is that you know I've I've worked with a number of people for quite a long time, and I think there's a big benefit in that, and particularly in markets where you know things do come across your bowels which are surprises and to unpick the sort of rhythm of markets i do think it helps if you have people you've worked with whose judgment you respect and trust and you know i'm lucky enough on that front i think the other things is you know like in life i think companies are often in a in too much of a hurry and i often think in terms of trying to invest a bit more in strategic tortoises rather than strategic hares, if you think about that sort of that parable or, or fable. Um, and, you know, we've had a good illustration of that, you know, a company like Rentacle, which, you know, is, is a great company run by a very good chief executive, but they have um, made a very big acquisition and it's proving to be a little bit more complicated than they thought. Whereas a company like Ashted, which we have in the portfolio, is just cranking out the sort of organic capex and the envelope of returns around that are a bit more predictable. So, you know, I wouldn't be didactic about that, but I do think there's something in that, um, you know, the strategic tortoise over the hair. I think other things I would think about, I think the IPO process has changed a lot over the years, and I think it's a little bit stacked against new buyers. I think we tend to favour buying second-hand companies, if you like. They have a bit more history. Histories, I think, they're, again, pretty underrated in markets. And, you know, I think demergers are actually are, are, are better than IPOs to, to fish for valuation opportunities. Um, I think it's important to employ common sense. I mean, we were just chatting uh, before doing this podcast. Imran had just been to lunch at Greg's, and you know, Greg's is a um, uh, an investment in the fund. It's 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 one we like. You know, it's got great expansion potential. But one of the things that they obviously champion is, if you like, the sort of the uh, the use of the app and the like, and Imran was talking about the pros and cons of using click and collect. So I think, you know, use common sense, try the product if you can, all these sort of things I think are so important. And read voraciously, be imaginative. Yeah, I think those are the sort of things that immediately come to mind, Val. Mm, quite a lot to think about. You mentioned IPOs in there, which are actually relevant to one of the things I've been wanting to talk about with you today, which is the sort of state of UK equities, if you want. You know, they they have been doing fairly well this year, but in general, they are somewhat of a less loved area of the market. Um, and the government also seems quite keen on trying to make the city of London a bit more attractive for, for global investors. So I think the question would be, you know, what, what makes you quite confident about UK equities at this point? And also what will it take to, to make them attractive again? Yeah, I think both Imran and I would agree that you've really got to sort of see things in some kind of long-term context. And I think, you know, the UK equity market has been digesting a few things. Firstly, there's been the long march of pension scheme uh, de-risking, which has been selling UK equities. You know, when I and Imran started, we would have 
between 40 and 60 or plus percent in UK equities. Now, if you look at Nest, it's down at sort of, you know, 4%. These are big, big changes. Wealth managers, again, have, have sold down dramatically. Um, and then obviously, you know, we've had the political ramifications which have impacted global investors' view of the UK post-Brexit. So those are sort of important things which the market has had to absorb. But, you know, I'd say to, to listeners that, you know, markets are about rates of change. And, you know, I, I genuinely believe that actually compared to, let's say we were doing this podcast, you know, a year ago, it, it would have felt pretty odd because we had things like trussonomics and the like coming through. Now, actually, the news is, you know, it's a lot it's it's a lot better. It's not perfect, but you know we've had our, if you like, sort of flirtation with sort of political extremes, both on the left and the right. If I can sort of tiptoe gently into sort of political chat, which I think is important. Policies now, basically, on both of the major parties, are, are relatively centrist. We've got the advent of disinflation, which is good. We might be close to sort of peak rates. The ONS revision on UK growth, you know, puts us back in the pack. So, you know, the growth angle is 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 sort of okay. And I think the two more powerful forces, which I sort of talk about really are, firstly, valuation. You know, valuation is standout cheap. If you sort of look at perhaps, you know, the likes of Goldman or others, you can see that our free cash flow in the UK equity market, and even if you adjust for the fact that we've got sort of international energy companies and the like, it's still standout. And also a lot of that's coming back in dividends and buybacks. And, you know, one of the things I've certainly learned that while sometimes you have to be patient, in the end, valuation trumps all things. So, you know, it feels, well, it seems just on valuation terms that the UK should be due, you know, a relatively good period. Mm-mm. So some cautious optimism there. Things getting yeah. better, hopefully. Yeah. Let's, I would say, move on to talk about the trust a little bit. So many of our listeners will be familiar with Edinburgh Investment Trust, but just to recap super briefly, it's a roughly 1.2 billion investment trust that invests in a portfolio of 40 to 50 stocks, uh, mostly UK, UK equities, with the option to go international for a uh, relatively small portion of the portfolio. And as of September, three quarters of the portfolio was in the FTSE 100, about 15% in the FTSE 250, uh, and about 8% outside the UK. So the trust is going through quite a significant transition in terms of management. Imran, I'm, I'm coming to you with this because, correct me if I'm wrong, you have just been appointed deputy manager, uh, replacing Chris Field, who is also retiring, and then you will become manager when James retires uh, in February next year. So obviously, I mean, investors tend to get been nervous even when just one fund manager retires, uh, never mind two, and it must be I guess, quite a steep learning curve. So I'd like to ask you, you know, how, how you're approaching this and how you're ensuring that the sort of transition runs quite smoothly. Of course, Val. Well, look, firstly, uh, to say that I'm hugely excited about taking the lead on, on the trust uh, early next year. But I'm very much supported by the, the wider Lion Trust team. Um, that, that is unchanged, uh, you know, the investment process that has served the trust so well over the last three and a half years 
um, is absolutely unchanged. And also James earlier talked about having a pragmatic, a flexible investment philosophy and process. Uh, and I'm very much of that school of thought. So um, there's a, there, there are more similarities than differences between James and I. Of course, as, as you know, James and I have worked together for a very good number of years, you know, since 1997. And, um, you know, we, we've very much been bottom up stock pickers. So that's the focus. That's not changing. And I guess I'm also in the very fortunate position uh, that, I, that I inherit a well set portfolio. Thank you, James. Yeah, it's performed really well and it's full of advantaged businesses. You know, overall, expect modest change in the portfolio, very much stock specific. Don't expect the portfolio construct, the overall shape of the portfolio to change very much. Mm. And can you tell us a bit more about what, you know, that approach, that flexible approach looks like? What, what does it mean? How, how do you pick stocks? Um, you know, at, at the kind of very heart of the investment process is that bottom-up focus. Um, you mentioned it earlier, Val. You know, we're looking to build a portfolio of 40 to 50 uh, positions um, in the trust. Um, and you know, each of those positions has an attractive total return characteristic. You know, that is, you know, the combination of some income plus capital growth. So what do we look for companies? Well, typically, and we're looking for businesses that have an edge. I know that's a really good starting point. Ideally, in industries that are, um, you know, that have somewhat of a tailwind rather than a headwind. Again, that helps. And ideally, businesses that have strong balance sheets. I think, firstly, that provides resilience to the portfolio, and secondly, and perhaps more importantly, it also provides good optionality for clever management teams to add value. You know, James talked earlier about Ashted. You know, it's that, that very strong market position, the strong balance sheet allows them to outspend the competition by a country mile. You know, that's genuine value add. And perhaps if I kind of bring it to life with a, a couple of examples, you know, Halion is a um, consumer healthcare business. It's a two and a half percent position um, in the trust it's an example of an advantaged business in a uh, in a in a uh, industry that has tailwinds it has fabulous brands you know be it sensodyne and corsadil uh, in oral care centrum that um, fantastic multivitamin brand and advil and, and voltron in pain relief and these are world class brands um, that are set to take market share in our view so we like the growth there, we like the margins, we like the returns of the business, the cash generation is really strong, but we think there's more to come. And, and finally, I just say, you know, to reiterate what James said earlier about demerger processes. I think it's another edge that we have on, on Halion. You know, it was um, spun out from GlaxoSmithKline around 18 months ago. We believe it's been unloved and undermanaged, and that's an opportunity in terms of improving the commercial execution and the innovation, uh, which is a key driver of growth. Mm -mm -mm. Let's take a better look at, at, the, at the portfolio then, since you've started talking about, you know, a few companies. I think, you know, one of the things we, we mentioned it at the beginning is the sort of economic outlook for, for the UK, which has been getting a bit better, but we might still facing at the very least a period of stagnation, which in the long term, there's not, you know, it's not necessarily better than, than a recession. Um, 
so you know how is the portfolio positioned for for that kind of situation because um, you do i think have a few cyclical stocks as well yeah so um the way we endeavor to um layer the portfolio is if you like is um obviously looking to choose the 40 to 50 stocks but maybe thinking them in terms of a number of different themes and you know firstly value you know you talked about you know the starting assumption of the uk economy you know producing relatively lackluster growth and you know arguably that's difficult to argue strongly against but you know the interesting thing about that i think is that against that background actually if you are a well-financed number one or number two in an industry, it's not that bad a environment to be trying to grow. And, you know, if I think about the likes of Whitbread, which is a, you know, decent sized holding in the trust, you know, they produced results last week. And, you know, if you look at that, it, it was very interesting because, you know, relative to what they were doing pre-COVID, and this is a key metric, I think, when looking at companies is, you know, is there clear blue water between the 2019 and now? And in Whitbread's case, there definitively is. Uh, you know, Whitbread, as you know, is a vertically integrated uh, um, business. So that means it doesn't really uh, or rarely gives money away to the booking agencies. You have to go direct. And if you think about its competitive set, you know, it is the franchise operators who pay away a chunk. It's Travelodge, which is geared to the hilt, and it's the independents, many of which have had a bit of a nightmare. If you think about the period of COVID, you know, it was you're closing, you're opening, you're closing. Then you've got problems with labor scheduling. Then you've got your electricity bill doing a moonshot. All these things are a real nightmare for the competition. Whereas Whitbread, Whitbread actually well-financed, able to expand still. And, you know, the killer stat, I thought, which came across from the results two weeks ago was actually that supply and pricing and markets are about supply and demand. Supply is not going to reach the 2019 levels till 2028. And against that backdrop, Whitbread is going to look to expand 50% its rooms and its return on capital, which is a key metric that both Imran and I, you know, really lap up. Return on capital is moving from a sort of 12% plateau in the previous decade to 14.9. So definitively stepping up. And I think that's a microcosm, dare I say, of what many companies are capable of with a sort of in a relatively low growth environment, which, you know, is not a bad starting assumption, frankly. Yeah, so it's not it's not just all about that. You mentioned return on capital there. What are some of the, the metrics you like looking at in your, you know, in your portfolio companies, some of the ones that you like most to follow? Yeah, so it would be it, it would be a mix and it would depend on the company you're looking at. But I mean, in essence, it's metrics like free cash flow, uh, return on capital, invested capital. And then it, it's the more simple metrics such as PE and yields. It's definitely a mix and a jigsaw. But what I also say is, you know, those metrics are great, but you've also got to move away from a spreadsheet and think about other things like 
how a company's profits fit into society, uh, things like net promoter scores, all these things, you've really got to use all the data you can to put the jigsaw together. Which is actually a good way to kind of like introduce a company that is in your portfolio. And I would like to ask you about, because I know quite a few of our readers and listeners do have it. And that's M&S. M&S obviously had a very good year. Um, the share price, I think it's up something like 100% on a one-year basis. And I think you've had added to it recently as well. It feels like management has been making quite good progress in sort of modernizing the business. You know, where, where do you see it going? Is these sort of optimism justified? I think it is justified. I think, again, if we look back in, in over a longer time frame, uh, M&S has been a, an also-ran company for a long period. You know, Sir Philip Green tilted it, effectively it missed the internet um, boom and the like. And what they've done under the relatively new chairperson Archie Norman is they've made some tough choices frankly and I'd contrast that with perhaps you know John Lewis so John Lewis perhaps hasn't made the tough choices so what they've done is their store portfolio hadn't been modernized so they've decided to recycle their store portfolio and that is very very powerful because uh, what you do is you increase the productive capacity of your assets. So coming back to what we were talking about, return on capital, you know, by closing a store and opening a better store in the same area, you are genuinely massively improving the profitability from that catchment area. So that is the first thing they've done. The second thing they've done, and I think it was probably arguably helped by COVID, is all the sort of grey areas and decision-making were pushed to one side. They had to uh, get their online offering clothing up and running. They did that, and that is doing well. I think they've also had something of a cultural change in terms of design and the like, in terms of clothing and home. The style metrics and the like are all a lot better, and that's evidence in the sales rate that they're making on full-price merchandise, okay? And, you know, I think the fact that, let's say, Sienna Miller is, is now, you know, championing their adverts. I mean, it's sort of thing which would never have happened three, four years ago, which shows that perhaps their style metrics, it's a bit like talking about politics, um, me talking about style, but there we go. Um, uh, you know, it seems like it is, it, is, it, is, it is improving. And then obviously on the food side, what they've done is they've reinvested in price using remarkable value and the like and that has stimulated volume. So in both their main operations, they are growing share and putting more and better productive capacity down. And the one thing, you know, coming back to your first question, Val, on lessons, what I've learned is um, in terms of retail retailers, when a retailer gets on a virtuous circle, you've just got to hang on for the ride. And, you know, in the short term, yes, September weather wasn't great, but, you know, the weather at some point will get cold and they'll sell a lot of knitwear. And I think this is a business that has momentum, big cultural change, and I think it's one to hang on. Okay, so 
bit of hype, but perhaps justified. Let's go to another one of your, I'm going to say bet in the sense who a company that um, you've got quite a bit of exposure to compared to the index, but that he's having instead quite a few difficult months and that's NatWest. So obviously part of it was because of the sort of change in management, the whole sort of coots debacle. And then I think there are some questions about how it will fare depending on what happens to interest rates. So again, how, how do you feel about all of that? Well, you're right to say NatWest in this most recent period has been a soggy share price along with a number of the UK orientated banks. And, you know, the big picture, yes, there's been some specific news on coots and the like, and obviously there's been a change of management that's resulted from that. But the bigger picture is obviously there's been a lot of competition for deposits and also the FCA, you know, rightly has has argued that um, banks need to make sure as part of consumer duty that actually uh, depositors are offered a fair return. So we've seen a big repricing and a bit of competition, obviously, for deposits. That's evidenced in particularly in Barclays results. And, you know, that has led to, you know, gentle downgrades to uh, what is called the net interest margin. But I think, you know, taking a step back, the sort of bigger feature is that what UK banks do is they hedge forward. And this is something that, if you like, is something that's going to come, it's going to be a gift that's going to keep giving this hedge over the next few years. And so gives shareholders, I think, in that West some assurance that actually the earnings power over the next um, few plus years will be reasonably good compared to where the valuation is. Obviously, now it's trading at um, about 60% of book. Uh, the profits that it produces are in the main distributable. Uh, which is good. So you're going to see a good yield and also you're going to see a buyback. So, you know, yes, you're right. The shares have been soggy, but now is not the time to lose the faith on this one. And actually, speaking of losing faith in companies, you know, when when does that happen in the sense, you know, what are the kind of things that can push you to to sell a company? Yeah, well, I sort of think often as a sort of jigsaw, effectively, you know, obviously running a portfolio, we've got a one's running a collection and one needs, needs to feel very strongly about this. And at any point in time, there's a sort of, there's tension for capital. I would say that, I mean, to illustrate how we funded Halion, for example, um, which Imran chatted about earlier, you know, that was funded by the sale of records which have produced results today. And, you know, I think if I was to contrast the quality of results of the two, you know, Halion is a business that is producing a good mix in its sales between volume and price, both positive and also has white space to expand into, whereas Reckitt's is actually producing negative volume, some 4%, and price of seven. So that balance isn't perfect. So it's very difficult to generalize Val and sort of what drives a sell decision. But, you know, the quality of the earnings is what Imran and I are always looking at. The quality of earnings 
the quality of the market positions and the growth potential. And in the case of Reckitts, it didn't cut the mustard. How do valuations sort of enter into that? Because I think I was looking, you know, at your annual report. And for example, you know, you sold Diageo last year on the grounds that the share price was fully capturing its future prospects. And I was wondering, you know, how, how do you sort of decide that? Say this is a good business, but maybe that's it. Yeah. Well, a colleague of mine did some, did some fantastic work on this. And, um, you know, Diageo, again, if we take a long-term perspective, um, what Diageo has done is it's in terms of market shares, it's kind of walked on water in the US uh, for the last decade. You know, most of its brands have gained share. But if you think back to the GFC, the global financial crisis, that was the last time we saw down trading in the States and Diageo's profits were sort of hit. So the engine of their growth, the last time it misfired was sort of the GFC. Then if you think about what happened in COVID in the States, people were given these stimulus checks, the stim checks. And a portion of that leaked into trading up in spirits, it leaked into some other areas. So it was just a judgment that when we were looking at uh, US results, and we're lucky to have a, you know, a good global team at, um, at, at Lion Trust, the balance of probability was that Diageo's sales was going to slow as the uptrading that they'd benefited, so the positive mix may have gone into reverse. Elements of that came true and the shares came off quite a bit um, from, you know, the sort of 37 level to the 31 pounds level. So, you know, it's an illustration, I think, again, of what I was saying earlier about this sort of jigsaw. One, one's never absolutely sure what's going to happen. These things are about a balance of risk and reward. Yeah, many moving parts as well. What about in terms of companies you've bought recently? Any, you know, particular example? So we talked a bit about Halion, for example. Another which we bought is Admiral. So Admiral, as you know, is motor and household insurer, mainly um, motor. And I think it speaks to one of the sort of angles which you've really got to nail now in stock selection, which is, you know, the use of data. Because um, insurance is a fiendishly difficult industry and you really got to with very few data points appraise a customer and admiral does that in a way that very few in the uk is able to so for example if you look at admiral's results versus direct line it's chalk and cheese effectively direct line has really struggled to navigate this increase in cost inflation uh, claims inflation that the whole industry has seen whereas actually admiral has navigated that well it's ahead of the curve and now we're past the nadir in pricing actually admiral is going to be into the sunny uplands of um earnings recovery so that is one that we bought um, and we think is in the early stages of, of, of doing, you know, pretty well, frankly. Mm, okay. I think um, almost at the end here, but Imran, if I can come back to you to kind of like finish things, what do you think 2024 is going to be like? Well, you know, it's, it's very important to understand that the focus for us is very much on the bottom-up stock picking. That's where the confidence comes from. You know, yes, 
James has done a fabulous job for the trust um, over the last three and a half years. And, you know, I'm essentially um, pursuing the same strategy, which is to focus on bottom-up stock picking. So you know, we, we really need to make sure that the performance is repeatable going forward. And that just comes back down to having a strong investment process, one that it's flexible and pragmatic to cope with, you know, some of the things that James talk, talked about, you know, it is our job to deal with the, the black swan events. And who knows what 24 brings? But I'd say the first thing is, is that we're, we're likely to be in an environment where interest rates are stable, broadly stable. You know, we've, we've been in a strongly rising interest rate environment. I think in 24, the consumer will have lacked much of the um, inflation-induced uh, increases in costs, you know, that cost of living crisis. And so the, the view would be that 24 is, you know, a year where, you know, there's a period of stability and that how you make money in that market is through stock picking. Um, through owning the businesses that will grow earnings, whatever the economic weather, um, you know, that's you know, a, a much harder call. You know, what does the um, temperature look like in 24? But our focus is very much on building a portfolio that can withstand a um, tough macroeconomic picture and grow earnings because of you know, having a competitively advantaged position. And, you know, companies run by smart management teams that will grow revenues, profits and cash flow. That, you know, that's where the, the focus is. Mm. And I know it is partly a matter for uh, the board, but what, what do you think of the discount of the trust in this sort of environment? Do you think, you know, it will be like this kind of more stable environment will help it close it? Well, we're both wanting to plunge in on there because actually we both feel very, very strongly on that. So maybe I just have my tuppenny worth on this. I mean, I just think it speaks to the joy in a way of investment trust. You know, here we have the UK equity market, which, you know, I think if you look at those metrics, free cash flow, the like, you know, is standout cheap. And the joy of the Edinburgh Investment Trust at the moment is that um, it trades at a 9% discount so actually in a way you have this double discount which i think is compelling sure we will have to see what what it will take for all the discounts in the investment trust sector to close but we remain very hopeful <laughs> cool okay this is planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. All we have time for today, I think. Thank you very much, James. Thank you, Imran. And thank you for listening. 